And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's John Lestrade and Gary K. Wolf on the Crude Street Podcast. And Hi, we're Gary. back again, once again, uh, into the breach, as they say. Um, we were talking, well, we might as well finish the conversation we were having before <laughs> we started recording. I, I started reading Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, and there, there's this resurgence now between Margaret Atwood's the Testaments, and Salman Rushdie's Kishat, which I understand is how you pronounce it, um, of science fiction becoming a thing that best-selling, award-winning, world-famous titans of literature are are jumping back into with a kind of enthusiasm I don't think we've seen for 15 or 20 years. I think that may be true. I think it's also very true to say that the success of genre television has been critical in that. I think mm-hmm. it has helped change people's attitudes to things. And I think more and more the lifelong perception of a barrier between, you know, literary, literary fiction and science fiction, et cetera, et cetera, is disappearing. And one of the things that's helping it disappear and which I think is probably manifestly true about the Testament is the siren song of television money. I think that's a very important factor. And one of the things that interests me about the Testaments is that Unlike what I understand George Martin is doing with his final Game of Thrones um, novels, Margaret Atwood seems to have embraced her TV series. She seems to have incorporated some elements that actually were invented in the TV series. So that's that's a kind of blending we haven't seen before, I don't think. Maybe so, but I think the real issue there is that Margaret Atwood had the luxury of that in a sense. You know, They took a complete work and then they expanded on it. It's uh-huh. quite different from taking an incomplete work and then finishing it and leaving the author holding the completed work, in, the incompleted text, and having to work out how to finish it. But here's the other thing that I think is still unfair uh, in, in terms of genre writers versus, let's say, um, mainstream literary writers. I, I, I hate the term literary writers because it implies that all the stuff we read the other time isn't really literary. Well, no, but what it really large, implies is that literature, literary is now a genre. Literary is a genre. It's, well, yeah, I, I, sure. you talk to, you know, talk to publishers and, and booksellers, clearly literary fiction is something that's put in a separate place from uh, from other things. I mean, I've noticed, for example, that um, Elizabeth Hand's wonderful new sort of historical mystery novel um, could be historical fiction, really ought to be mainstream fiction, and in my local Barnes & Noble has it shelved with other mysteries. Yeah. So this is the thing that happens. If you're a Margaret Atwood or a Salman Rushdie, or if you go back far enough, everybody from Steinbeck to Updike wrote fantasy or science fiction novels at some point in the career. You get to play with genre simply on the basis of the fact of of your power as a writer, of your reputation mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. power. And, and you break down the barrier that way. In other words, they have the freedom to break down the barrier. Somebody coming from the genre side in order to break down that barrier, has to do it with massive economic force the way George R. R. Martin did, for example. Uh, I don't think that... Um, now, you see what I'm saying? I, I, don't, I can think of very few mainstream novels, that, uh, very few science fiction novels that have gained the kind of mainstream attention that mainstream science fiction novels gain from the science fiction readership. Now, is that because the subject matter is particularly different? Is it that the focus of the science fiction writer writing a novel that might appeal to the mainstream is actually different? The kind of things that that they are trying to do are different from the things that the mainstream writer who is using science fiction is trying to do. I think it's true. I think that there are assumptions uh, about readership. There's there's a degree of it sounds terribly reverse snobbish to say this, but there's a degree of sophistication or a, a series of protocols that science fiction and fantasy writers believe their audience to understand. And I think when mainstream writers come into the field, they don't come in with the same approach. I think this is one of the reasons why, for example, uh, people now will cite uh, Le Guin's novels. They'll cite uh, the Earthsea novels. They'll cite The, the Dispossessed uh, and The Left Hand of Darkness as novels which made it into the mainstream on their literary merits. But they didn't. Uh, Le Guin did. After a mm-hmm. body of work, she, Le, Le, Le Guin finally, before she died, years before she died, was accepted as a major 
American writer, and she's you know in the Library of America to prove that. But at the time the novels appeared, they were just as widely ignored by mainstream critics and readers as any other science fiction novels. That's true, and I think oddly, and I think I have the timing on this right, her acceptance as a major writer in the broader literary spectrum, particularly at the highest levels of that, came after she had largely finished writing. It's large. It's very much true, and it's 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 always been worth um, my sense of irony. I think that her wonderful uh, acceptance for getting a lifetime achievement award from the National Book Awards, she didn't bother to mention what she could have, which is that during this entire career being honored yeah. Uh, yeah. by the National, that entire career didn't have a single National Book Award nomination. I don't think uh, for any of her adult novels at all. I don't think even the the Earthsea novels did. Yeah. In other words, it's possible for now, it's possible for the literary establishment to recognize a writer like Le Guin. Um, and I think uh, it's even possible for them to recognize a writer like George Martin, but whether they're recognizing him on the basis of the fact that he wrote one of the great fantasy series or simply on the basis of the fact that he created a monstrous money-generating machine, it's hard to say. Very hard to say. You can't be sure and... We can all have our, our thoughts. I mean, I, I actually think George's best work is his short fiction, something that he hasn't really d done much of since the beginning of The Song of Ice and Fire. So that's my view. Uh, I was struck. I mean, you, you talk about The Testaments, which just was the co-winner of the Booker uh, last week. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was struck by Nina Allen's review of it on her blog, where she really did think it was perhaps – second tier Atwood at the best, at, at, you know, at most, that it was one of those Atwood books that would be forgotten. And I, I'll be interested to see whether that proves to be the case and whether that, when you have finished the book, is your assessment or not. I'm curious about it myself because I'm curious. She is the most interesting of the literary writers uh, to have dealt with science fiction because she's dealt with it so consistently. Um, first, first of all, of course, with The Handmaid's Tale and then uh, with the Oryx and Crake trilogy, uh, which was much more adventurous and, and much less successful, I think, in terms of its deployment of science fiction ideas. And now she's back with, of course, the Testaments. Uh, so she's been consistently involved with science fiction, despite her the, 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 the various squids in space comments that she made and I think has mm -hmm. later withdrawn and so forth. She was a good friend of Le Guin, according to what Le Guin actually told us on this podcast. So so she's engaged with the field in a way that I think is utterly fascinating and in a way that strikes me as being more substantial than dipping in once in a while. I mean, the other yeah. uh, the, the other mainstream novel with a lot of science fiction elements is Salman Rushdie's Quixote, or Quixote, which we would pronounce it if we haven't been told to pronounce it Quixote. Um, and he's somebody else who seems to dip in once in a while to the field. But Atwood seems to really be interested in the science fiction, and I I can think of very few mainstream writers who have tried tried to engage with it consistently over time, whether successfully or not. Uh, the only other one that quickly comes to mind is Doris Lessing, uh, and by which I don't mean simply the Canopus and Argos things, but if you go back to one of what I think is her most powerful novels, The Fifth Child, which deals with kind of a, a genetic freak. Uh, essentially a, a kind of Neanderthal child. If you go back to um, The Four Gated City, which is the last of her children of violence novels, which just moves into the future, uh, the memories of her survivor. In other words, there are lots of Lessing novels over a 20-year period that engaged with science fiction, and some of them I found unreadable, yeah. but some of them I thought were brilliant. How do you place Jonathan Lethem or Michael Chabin on the spectrum then? This Both is of them a good have written question. a lot of uh, genre fiction, or sorry, well, sorry mention fiction, but have actually strong genre connections. Well, they, I, th I think you're dealing with a, a somewhat different generation. You're dealing with um, maybe not entirely a different generation, but certainly a different um, history of reading, in that I think um, Lethem and Chabon have made it very clear they grew up reading science fiction and sure. reading comic books, and they grew up with this kind of popular culture. I don't think they were ever part of a literary establishment that that made the distinction. At least their generation, I don't think, made the distinction. I mean, Lethem's first novel was Gun with Occasional Music, which is a kind of cyberpunk uh, 
comic book, uh, private eye, noir thing with lots of science fiction elements in it. Um, in fact, he won the crop for that. I don't, yeah. uh, if I'm mistaken. And, and Michael so, Chabon so is think sure that, running a Star think, Trek TV show. Exactly. And, and Michael Chabon clearly uh, was comfortable with the science fiction. I think one of the things that you uh, could see in a, a novel like uh, The Yiddish Policeman's Union which I believe is one of the few novels to win both a Nebula and a Hugo. Um, I'll be corrected on that if I'm not right. There's a dozen or so. But, yeah, uh, yeah but this is practically the only mainstream novel that I think has both of those. Uh, the only novel from the mainstream side of the market sure, sure. That, that has those awards. And it's clear that he's very comfortable with the idea of alternate history in that. He doesn't bother to if, – if you compare his treatment of alternate history, for example – with Philip Roth's treatment of alternate history in the case of uh, the, the plot against America, Roth clearly think he was invent- clearly was under the impression he was inventing the entire genre of alternate history in that novel, and in oh. fact said so later in an essay in the New York uh, Times Book Review. Chabon knew perfectly well that he was joining a tradition that he had enjoyed for a long time. I don't think it would have surprised anybody to. Uh, uh, I don't think it would have surprised him at all when people pointed out that what he was doing was a kind of uh, tradition of science fiction that a lot of people had been playing in for, for decades. I think he'd read some of those things. And I think that what you were saying earlier about making assumptions about your audience, Chabon is one of those writers who clearly was able to address the science fiction audience in a way that impressed them enough that they thought this was an outstanding alternate history and at the same time address the mainstream readers who may never have read an alternate history before they read The Yiddish Policeman. Sure. Let me ask you this. Okay. So Emily Sinjin, Mandel, uh, Zadie, Zadie, Zadie Smith, Marlon Eden James. Eden Lepucky is another one with California. Have all, have all written genre-influenced, inflected, or straightforward genre fiction. So here's my question for you. When when I think about this distinction between mainstream and literary and science fiction and genre and everything, which I've never been 100% convinced about being totally viscerally real, mm-hmm. is it just the, something that mostly affected the genre, the um the generation of writers who are 60 and up? Because um, Michael Harris um, and MJ Harrison would strongly agree with you. Uh, I think some of the people who've circled around the Guardian and have reviewed for the Guardian mm. would probably strongly agree about this uh, this breakdown between uh, genre, you know, genre and mainstream. But when you look at the writers who are under fifty odd, it seems like they seem to move back and forth reasonably easily, and that if there's an issue, it's not so much to do with the writers and their perceptions. But the compare the relative genre gatekeepers, whether they're literary genre gatekeepers who run the the Booker Prize, mm-hmm. or science fiction um, uh, gatekeepers who run the Nebula or the World Fantasy Award. Well, the the World Fantasy, yeah, you're right because the Nebula is a limited set of voters, and the World Fantasy Award is voters plus judges. So there's uh, there's a kind of independent judgment going on there. I, no, I tend to agree with that completely. I think that. Uh, it's. I think there are a generation of writers. Um, Carmen Maria Machado is another good example, who clearly grew up as comfortable with science fiction and with other forms of popular culture, with television, with crime shows, with comic books. Um, we we have a generation of people now who uh, comfortably move back and forth between comics and sure, and TV sure. and, and and novels, and I think that would have been uh, the kiss of death for anybody who wanted literary reputation thirty or forty years ago. Well, Carmen Machado wrote a very testy, I don't think it's unreasonable to call it testy, introduction to the most recent installment of the Best American uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy series, mm-hmm. which you can read on Tor.com, should you be interested, where she actually um, expresses very little interest slash support in this very distinction and sees it as being something of a friffy, I think it's fair to say. And I found myself mostly... Nodding, I, I kind of feel like it's one of these things that is set up as an excuse for limitations rather than being a real practical limitation in most cases. Well, I think it's true, but uh, again, it's it's a question. I don't think it's a question of literary quality. I don't think it's a question of which books will last, which books will be read. 
or even which books have higher quote-unquote literary standards than others. It still, I think, is a marketing issue. I still think when you mention um, a Zadie Smith or um, or even a Michael Chabon, they themselves may not feel that this distinction exists. But in a sense, that's a privileged class of writers. A younger writer who begins in the science fiction world and wants to uh, break out is going to have, I think, more difficulty with a mainstream novel than a mainstream novelist who dips in and out of science fiction. That's point A. Point B is that some of the writers we've talked about, you mentioned Emily St. John Medell, all I, all I know about her is Station Eleven, which is actually quite good. But is that something where she has the right to play with genre, but genre writers don't have the right to play with, let's say, realistic novels, novels about uh, Midwestern families and so forth? My point is it's still, I think, is easier for someone with, with quote-unquote literary credentials to move into science fiction and fantasy than it is for a known science fiction or fantasy reader, writer to move in the other direction. <clears throat> and I don't think that's fair. Well, it may not be fair, and it may be true, and it may be because the way that a mainstream writer does I mean, in a sense, the mainstream literary writer is, is theoretically saying my my subject matter is everything, and generally the way that they they approach it is they add elements, small elements of genre to what they're doing to to make mm. their point to extrapolate whatever else. I guess I could see that if you were talking, and I'm p- pulling names at random, if you're talking Gregory Benford suddenly wants to m- write a mainstream realist novel, I don't doubt that he could. I don't doubt that he could sell it. I don't know how it would be received, and I don't know to what extent his genre past would be held against him. I don't either. Uh, and I, I, I think there, I, there are a lot of science fiction writers, Benford among them, who have moved into mainstream territory in what I sort of consider the Michael Crichton techno-thriller area. He's written novels like that. Greg Bear has written novels like that um, with, I guess, moderate degrees of success. Uh, but that's not moving into what we're talking no. about, the quote-unquote literary world. That's moving to the bestseller thriller genre world. It's writing science books rather than <laughs> science fiction books. Yeah. Because they're, they're always science thrillers. They're not, you know, it's not like sort of uh, Ocean's Eleven or something, right? No. So, uh, you know. So I, I guess my point is you're, you're right when you talk about successful writers of a younger generation who um, – who, who feel that who maybe don't feel the kind of barriers that uh, that people like Harlan Ellison and Ray Bradbury complained about a half century ago. Um, I remember a famous essay by Bradbury. One of his not 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 by Bradbury. One of one of Ellison's famous rants was about how you can't ever get out of uh, the ghetto, as he called it. Now that, that's an archaic term that maybe only older science fiction and fantasy writers recognized, but it was a very real term for the people of his generation. He spent his career trying to get the science fiction label (coughs) taken off his books, as did Bradbury. And in the essay, he said, every once in a while, a Vonnegut gets out or a Bradbury gets out, but it's the exception rather than the rule. It's no longer as much an exception as it used to be. (coughs) Excuse me. And I don't think an author like Vonnegut were around today... I don't think he would need to as assiduously deny the science fiction label as he felt he needed to do back in the 60s. Maybe so. And I also think it's a thing that has been and will disappear over time. I don't think it's a permanent feature of our literary landscape. Assuming with the changes in our our climate that we're going to continue caring about our literary landscape, I, I see it as being mostly an artifact of the past. I think it is, but I, I, I feel it, it, I feel bad when you when you talk about a historical change, which is one of the few historical changes that may be to the good. That is, if literature is becoming more open to all different voices and including genre voices, diverse voices of various kinds, that's great. But my argument is also it's probably for at least a generation of readers, it's probably too late for people. Um, outside of the science fiction and fantasy readership to discover, for example, the fiction of Gene Wolfe. I mean, most of the people I know who've read Gene Wolfe argue 
persuasively, and I tend to agree with them, that this is one of the great literary voices of the 20th and early 21st century. Um, is he going to be read outside of the readership of science fiction and fantasy ever? No, I don't think he ever will be. Uh, I think there is something about the density of imagination, the density of prose, mm -hmm. the complexity of what he was doing that, first of all, narrows or focuses the appeal of the text. I think for a lot of people, Gene Wolfe seems like a hard read, if you like. And I think he's a hard science fiction read, not as in hard SF, but, you know, a, a challenging science fiction read. He's demanding. Um, he's a demanding writer. And I think that will work against him being read broadly in the mainstream. Here's my problem with that. I mean, I agree that that's, that's, that's the case. But you have the literary writers, and every time I use the word literary, just see the quotation marks around it, who are willing to do that work to read Ulysses or to read the novel, which was one of the finalists for this year's book, or the one uh, which is basically one sentence of... Uh, Duck's uh, Newburyport. Duck's Newburyport. Now, clearly, that's a demanding read. I've not even seen the book. I don't, I've not looked at it. Um, but my point is, why are why is a certain category of reader who consider themselves literary willing to do the work to unpack James Joyce or Ducks Newbury uh, Port and not willing to do the work necessary to unpack a Gene Wolfe? Well, first of all, Ducks Newbury Port, in its defense, I don't think is particularly dense or difficult. I think okay. were you to, were you to pick it up, you'd find it pretty accessible. It is, mm -hmm. in some ways, to my mind, most like reading. A Ridley Walker, right? Where mm -hmm. once you get its rhythm, which takes you about a chap, you know, like about five, ten pages, then you don't think about it anymore. It doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't seem quite that sort of a stunt. And I think that Ulysses actually remains very much a narrow focus appeal book. You know, I, I mean, I think you could make a, whilst Ulysses is hailed as a great work of literature, mm -hmm. does it actually appeal to a broader readership than uh, the Citadel of the Autark. Um, it, it it does in the sense that it has a legend attached to it. Uh, mm. When I was all the time I was in college and graduate school, but most of the people I knew, uh, it was it was a mark of pride to have finished Ulysses, or I should say, mm. it was a mark of pride to have claimed to have finished Ulysses. <laughs> and, and, and if people were really going to impress the rest of us, they would claim to have finished. Finnegan's Wake, and of course nobody can ever test anybody making that claim <laughs> unless you happen to be a Finnegan's Wake scholar yourself. Um, but uh, and and, and it, it seems to me though that the that's true, and and Gene Wolfe might be in a kind of Joycean category. He might be in a, in a kind of Proustian category where he's recognized as one of the great writers by the few people who can read all of those things. On the other hand. Um, just like you were saying with um, uh, with George R. R. Martin short fiction, uh, Gene Wolfe's short stories and novellas are they're not less demanding, but they're less demanding in a kind of physical weighty sense than reading all of the Book of the New Sun and the Book of the Short Sun and the Book of the Long Sun. Um, there well, are some at Seven American Nights, things like that, are pretty accessible and they're pretty much masterpieces. Well, I think they're both accessible and. They're a shorter sprint, if you know what I mean. If you are reading The Book of the New Sun, mm -hmm. I, d I don't think Gene Wolfe ever sets out to be difficult. I really don't believe that. I, I don't believe, believe that even. he is doing a lot of heavy lifting, and there's heavy lifting you have to do too. Mm -hmm. The difference with the short fiction above and beyond all, beyond all else is you don't have to carry it as far. you know. Uh, and then there is yeah. also a certain... I'm going to say translucency that comes with his short fiction, that uh, comes with stories like The Map and Cabin on the Coast, mm -hmm. where he is telling it in a, the most straightforward way that he can. And yes, there, is, there are other levels to the work that, there, but the, the majority of the story is on the page and very, very accessible. Whereas I think if you're going to attempt The Book of the New Sun, I don't think it's like some abstract tertiary level test, but I think that it, it it requires you to pay attention for a long period of time. I think that's true, and I think that's true of a lot of uh, 
classics of literature. I mean, how many people have actually read all of um, In Search of Lost Time, all of Proust, for example? Uh, I'd be willing to bet that the number of people who have read Billy Budd outnumbers by a factor of 10 or more the people who've actually finished Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know it's there. And uh, you know, if you're trying to impress your friends at a cocktail party, you can say, I've read Melville, even though you might have read you know, his one or two science fiction stories now that I think about it. <laughs> well, I, I guess there's truth to that, you know. Uh, I don't think we're going to resolve this though. I'm not, not sure where we take this. I mean, I think things are changing. I think that Atwood is trying something different from a many science fiction writers. I mean, I was thinking about it. If you think about a science fiction book that you've read this year mm. or, or that came out last year that you liked, uh, and admired, was it attempting to do the same kind of thing that Anne Atwood is trying to do when she writes science fiction in the Testament? Seems to me, the science fictional complexification of the text is not the point of the testament. I think that's true. And I think that one of the things that uh, that she recognizes, now she did most of what we now call world building, that, most of that heavy lifting was done back with The Handmaid's Tale. And yeah. so she's already got her world there. Uh, she's dealing with um, uh, a kind of, common science fiction technique, which is an oddly reassuring technique when you're writing a dystopia, which is to have it in the form of documents discovered, yeah. you know, years after Gilead has fallen and, and the United States has been restored and so forth and so on. Uh, so she uses a lot of science fiction techniques, but by and large, uh, no, she's not making a lot of imaginative demands. And for that yeah. matter, back in The Handmaid's Tale, you had essentially, and this is true of a lot of dystopias, you had to essentially accept a handful of propositions, and then you were there. There's not a lot of inventiveness in terms of uh, technology or science or even societal change in that. It's just here's a really awful, theocratic, oppressive dystopia. Once you've got the rules down, everything plays out like a mainstream novel. Uh, It deals with character. It deals with betrayals. It deals with uh, marriages. It has wonderful characters in it. And when, when a writer like Atwood gets all the groundwork laid, and gets back into her comfort zone, which is really writing character, she's very, very good. Well, she's a brilliant writer. I mean, she's one of the great writers of the last half century. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. I mean, it is interesting to compare, I suppose, The Testaments and Handmaid's Tale. I think one is deeply established as a permanent classic of 20th century literature. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see how The Testament settles in. I'll be interested to see how that works out, too, because I, uh, th- th- there's always a question when you return to a classic of whether you're going to challenge your readers to rethink the classic in the way that you've thought. This is, uh, what, 35 years almost, 1985, like 34 yeah. years. And uh, is she simply revisiting this? I, I, I'm maybe 100 pages into the novel, so I don't know the answer to the question. Is she revisiting us? Or is she asking us to rethink her earlier fiction in a way possibly similar to the way uh, Le Guin Stahanu said, look, I've reconsidered Earthsea, and I want you to reconsider it also. Um, And that struck me as being a courageous and risky thing to do. And a lot of people, I think you said this before, maybe once on the podcast, a lot of people think Tahanu is – the worst Earthsea novel ever. It just destroyed everything. It's like re- reading Tahanu is like, you know, reading Jeff Ryman's Was after you've read The Wizard of Oz. It just undoes everything you thought was wonderful about it. On the other hand, it reinvents the story from a, a, a radical, mm. not a radical new perspective, but certainly it reinvents the story from, from Le Guin's perspective 20 or 30 years later. So there's always that question on writing a sequel to a classic. Is it just more of the same, or is it, let's revisit this from today's perspective? Very much so. I mean, and I will always sort of stay, stand there and say that Tahanu is my favorite book of Rithsea. And I know people worth. who, I know people who absolutely hate Tahanu yep. because they loved Earthsea so much. Yeah. So what else have you been doing in the science fictional way of thinking lately, Gary, this last week? Science fictional thinking is... You know well, between... what I mean. Have you been reading and doing <laughs> stuff, or, or what, what's the story? Well, I was... Uh, just today, uh, one of the things I do think is encouraging 
uh, and I've often said this, are the way small presses have revived and preserved the short story collection, especially short mm-hmm. story collections um, by writers who haven't had that higher profile. Fairwood Press has just published um, a collection of short stories by Susan Powick, who is a writer who I've admired. I think is a very good writer. She has not written a lot over the years. Uh, her first novel was very disturbing, called Flying in Place, which dealt with child with sexual molestation of a child mm-hmm. by her father. Um, and then a handful of, probably more than a handful, maybe two or three dozen really good stories. But by and large, um, has been working as a professor. She's retired now. She's written some excellent stories. And uh, the collection, which is called All Worlds Are Real, has an introduction by Joe Walton, who has become one of Susan Palwick's champions. And yep. I think there are a generation of writers um, like this who have been consistently strong writers. Lisa Goldstein is another name who comes to mind, um, that, that, that have never been prominently first-rank writers but have been consistently there year after year after year yeah. and who probably wouldn't get short story collections published if it weren't for small presses interested in doing this sort of thing. And there, there are writers who have gotten a lot of individual attention for stories, but uh, Christopher Rowe comes to mind, writers to whom, for whom small beer press has been a wonderful um, place to collect their stories. So my, my, my message to everybody for this week is find interesting short story collections from small presses, and they're probably going to be more interesting than you thought they would be. Ah, <laughs> oh, fair enough. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to do. <laughs> I mean, certainly there are many, many, many of them. There is no, no dearth of major short story collections coming out from both small and major presses. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly depending on how you assess an independent publisher like Solaris. I mean, they had a just had a Yunha Lee collection, Hex Arcade Stories out very recently. Mm-hmm. There's a big new collection of Greg Egan stories coming out from Subterranean. Subterranean. And Elliot. Elliot de Bodard is. Uh... Yeah, the Elliot de Bodard is from them as well. That's her first collection of right. Starlight and. And whatever the rest of the title is. It's a long title that slipped my mind, which makes me feel very old. Yeah, hang on. Of, I believe, of I Wars and Memories and Starlight. Is the yes, point. that's a title I've seen that too. And if I'm not mistaken, I saw an announcement that Subterranean is doing the first collection of Chaz Brinchley stories. Yes, that's correct, uh, next year. And, and again, that's that's another writer who has written some excellent stories. All I know uh, are that there's some excellent stories there. I'll be very interested to see a bunch of them put together. I know I haven't read all of them. Probably well, not I even most. I know they're also doing The Best of Elizabeth Bear, which will be a mm-hmm. very interesting book because she's a terrific short story writer. Uh, and then, you know, when you get down to the, the smaller ones, I mean, there are, you know, there are odd stuff around. I mean, I know that Hachette India is hardly what you'd call a small press, uh, at all. But on the other hand, their availability in this, you know, in English markets is almost the equivalent. And they just yeah. published an SB Divya collection. Which is worth seeking out, and uh, well worth seeking out if you can get get it online. And there's been a lot of other things. So yeah, lots of small press and stuff. I, on the other hand, have been working on the introduction to my forthcoming robots anthology, Made to Order, uh-huh. and that has had me thinking about the role of robots, the rise of artificial intelligence, the assumption in science fiction that artificial uh, that artificial intelli- intelligence will naturally uh, evolve from the complexification of systems mm-hmm. and the way that we choose to humanize tools. I mean, I had this exchange with Peter Watts, who was saying to me that he was troubled by this idea that um, we always assume that, you know, robots will somehow stand in for us, that, they're, that they'll represent some kind of slave class in fiction or whatever else. Yeah. And yet they are manufactured, created objects. And they don't, why, why would you give a, a robot more intelligence than it needs to perform its task? And that brought me around to the fate of the Mars rover back in February. And I don't know if you recall the very warm response when there was a paraphrasing of the of the rover's final message that, you know, what is it? Uh, my battery is getting low and it is getting dark. It was broadcasting a Billie Holiday song or something at the end, wasn't it? 
some uh, I'm not sure if that's the same rover maybe but I know that the, the last uploaded ah. message was interpreted as saying my memory is low I oh, sorry my battery is low and, and and the you know and it is getting dark and of course it was really all it was was an uploaded uh, set of telemetry that said yeah battery power is low and the ambient lighting in the area is dark, is low. Right. And it happened to, to coincide with the storm and they never heard from the rover again. Uh, which doesn't, but, but, you know, it was, it was basically a glorified Roomba, right? Uh huh. And yet we felt the need to personify it, to, to, to give it this kind of poetic kind of death. And I find it interesting that this is the way that we are, uh, treating these these objects, these tools, these machines, and I wonder if it's because it's the only way to storify them, to make them connect in story for 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 people. I suspect it is, and I suspect I mean, the idea of the robots as a slave class goes back to the original robot story, it goes back to Carl Chopek. Um, the thing that always amused me about robot stories, the early earlier generations of stories, from the literally the twenties on through Asimov stories in the fifties. Is that it was assumed that robots, uh, whatever their form, mostly humanoid, would have artificial intelligence. In other words, science fiction writers prior to the last 20 years or so didn't really worry that much about what artificial intelligence worked like. They, they didn't worry about that. Even Asimov, who considered himself a hard science fiction writer and was widely considered to be one, installed what he called positronic brains into his robots. And the positronic brain was the most egregious hand-waving in, 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 in all of Asimov's career. It means nothing. But sure. what it does is it means we will invent something which will enable these robots to act with intelligence. He had programming guidelines on them, but he never really grappled with the idea of what AI was. And it seems to me that the, the idea has flipped. In other words, we're no longer just inventing robots and assuming they'll be intelligent. We're worrying a lot about artificial intelligence and then asking what kind of robot structures would derive from that intelligence. I mean, Greg Egan's micro-robot kinds of things, or uh, robots that exist only in virtuality, um, things like the, uh, the the Mars rover is is, is a good example. Um, I think we personify these things for exactly the reason that we go to see movies like Wall-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're cute. We personify robots the way we used to personify fuzzy animals. And it makes me think of Suzanne Palmer's The Secret Life of Bots from last year as well. Exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, had its own share of this sort of space. Um, I, I guess it, it, the, I'm not going to be very articulate here, uh, unfortunately. I, I guess that this ties in with a growing sense of doubt that I feel about much of the, much of the, Closing of genre. You know, I, I don't know that I believe in artificial intelligence as a necessarily emergent fact, even though I read and enjoy stories about it. Uh, I was having correspondence with somebody yesterday, Fred Kish, who we have spoken to uh-huh. on the podcast, and mentioning that, you know, I don't see much of the point of getting off Earth. I, I, I consider the whole uh, exercise that Elon Musk, for example, is, is engaged in as being largely... Mm pointless i i i I, i'm struck constantly by the idea that space travel and particularly interstellar space travel is uh going on a long journey when there's no destination you know there's no there there i mean there may be in that you know there's inanimate rock and whatever else but i mean it looks picturesque Mm -hmm. but you know it's not exactly a, a welcoming environment to go to. And so I, you know, I, I can see why you wouldn't do it. I, I guess the blathery kind of counter to this is I can see why it's useful in story though. I just don't see why, how it's useful as personal philosophy. That's an interesting distinction to make. And I don't know how many, um, science fiction writers today believe as writers did 50 years ago that of course we're going to have moon colonies and you know Bradbury thought he could go to one before he died I think part of the part of the reason there is uh, that it goes back to the concept of extrapolation it's much easier to write stories about exploration uh, once you've used up all the 
explored places on Earth. In other words, um, you've got a, a handful of stories that deal with undersea colonies. You've got things like, oh, Arthur C. Clarke's The Deep Range, for example. Um, but the if, if, if so much of the fiction of exploration involved going to new places, space is the obvious place to go to. In other words, it's simply an extension of all the wonderful voyage fiction that existed sure, for thousands sure. of years before that. Uh, so in, in, in a way, it's easy. Uh, secondly, in a way, it, it, it provides endless opportunities for inventiveness. It's very difficult to invent creative kinds of new critters and aliens and monsters and things like that if you're stuck stuck on Earth. There are only so many forbidden islands, you know, uh, with King Kong on them that you can discover. And pretty much science fiction went through that period in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so I, th- I think that's part of it. Um, as far as the technology is concerned, I think it's the same sort of thing. Where can technology go next that's interesting and and storyable? Um, artificial intelligence is um, one way to go because it, it, it extends the idea of computers into uh, a future that leads to sort of some sort of conflict. I think I think we're running out of options there. I mean, I think no. the idea of of um, what was originally a fairly uh, challenging idea, which goes back to I don't know how far it goes back, but certainly it was very well handled in um, Gregory Benford's Galactic Center series. The idea that maybe most of the intelligence in the universe is mechanical. And it hates organic matter, the kind of idea that also resulted in the Terminator movies, that the robots will want to destroy us because we're us. Um, I like the Galactic Center books, but the more and more I thought about it, right, I think that's mm-hmm. dumb as shit. Can I just <laughs> say that? I think yeah. it's dumb as shit. And I'll tell you why it's dumb as shit. Why would inorganic life waste its energy hating organic life? It appears, at least from a distance that the overwhelming proportion of the universe at large is largely inorganic. You know, the inorganic Mm -hmm. life, if it existed, could consume 80% of the universe before it had to worry about intelligent organic life. So the idea that it would somehow hunt down and destroy uh, organic life seems implausible at best and i realize we're of talking course, about it's, it's, hard it's science fiction novels built to create story but it's kind of absurd but it's a story i mean it's the, the, the there's only so far you can go with the other the other way of dealing with the notion of an alien intelligence which i agree is probably the most rational way is maybe something like clark's rendezvous with rama where they don't know we're here they don't care if we're here they just kind of drift through the solar system we never we never figure out anything yeah um, yeah and the fact is that I, I, I suspect that may be true of alien life. It may be true of uh, uh, mechanical and uh, artificial intelligent life. The, the, the old, the old um, paradox, the, um, the Fermi paradox, has always bothered me um, <laughs> because, because the argument there, and I'm, I'm supporting what you were saying earlier, the argument mm. there is if there were intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, how come they haven't contacted us? Maybe they aren't interested in us. Maybe yeah. if you live in some backwater town in rural Mississippi, you've never seen anybody from New York show up. Because people from New York aren't going to show up there. They aren't interested. <laughs> yeah, I think there's tr- there's truth to all of that. Uh, I-, I guess maybe, though, the the value of the mission of science fiction, then, if there's any merit to what the nonsense that I just spouted, is then how it talks about us today. And that that's the most common way of looking at science fiction now, I suppose, is that it really is a tool to talk about the world around us mm-hmm. in one way or sure. another, even if it is set on a distant, on a, on a spaceship and around a, orbiting a different star system, uh, because otherwise it makes no sense at all. And that's one of the things that makes classic 50, 40s, 50s science fiction look so flat these days. I think it's true, and I've heard the uh, argument made that, that a lot of it is emotionally flat when it doesn't recognize to some extent uh, the, the metaphorical value of this. Here's an interesting way of making that contrast. If you take um, aliens or robots in science fiction, things that are intelligent and motivated and like us in some ways and completely unlike us in other ways, 
We always expect that to have a rationale in terms of your philosophical view of the universe, whereas the same sets of characters, um, alien monsters, or if, if, if they're in the form of dragons, or if they're in the form of uh, ghosts or, or zombies and so forth and so on, in fantasy we don't expect that rationale. Fantasy, we accept these things as somehow expressions of the subtext of our own society. But when we're reading science fiction, we're less willing to accept that and we insist, well, there's got to be some rational way of getting from here to there. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the distinctions between science fiction and fantasy are beginning to break down a little bit. Because they make no sense anyway? Uh, because what sense they make either in science fiction or fantasy, has to do with us and not with the imagined world that we're in. Yeah. And it's going to work. I've got to admit, I mean, I've I've circled the so-called, the alleged analog mm. slash astounding test for a science fiction story, you know, whether a story is science fiction or not. Mm. And I, I believe, and this may not be true, but I believe it to be that a science fiction story for them is a, a story that no longer works when you remove the science element from it, right? Mm -hmm. But how many stories can you really think of like that? Well, they um, actually break when you take the science out of them. And for that matter, what does taking the science out mean? It means taking out the science which is not currently recognized as uh, acceptable science. Because, in other words, you have a lot of novels. There, There's a novel... There was a Russian novel by Dmitry, I can't remember the last name, somebody will correct it, called The Romance of Leonardo da Vinci. Um, that novel really would not have worked without da Vinci's science, but it's a historical fiction. There must be novels about Alan Turing. And my point is, there are lots of novels that depend on science sure. in order to work. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, they're not necessarily science fiction stories, but... Let me ask you this, is for say something like, like say Werner Vinge's or Vinge's um, Zone of Thought novels, right? uh -huh. could they be transposed to being Adventures at Sea and still work? Oh, I think so. I, I, I think so. Um, but then, you know, some somebody is going to be out there complaining, well, if you take the sea story away, if you take the ocean away from sea stories, it won't work anymore. Um, <laughs> which no, you end up with a very, very dystopian for far future climate right, change exactly. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although I don't know. It's fruitless, Gary. It's, it, it's fruitless, but it's worth talking about because it goes back to your point about robots. We need, we don't need robots um, in the, in the classical sense of the term at all. We need them imaginatively. Uh, well, I think that's because it. I mean, real life, real life robots are boring. You mentioned you're right. Roombas are there. We have them. Uh, I remember seeing, and I, I, I believe I saw this, but I may be uh, mistaken. In one of the old pulp magazines, there was a uh, a black and white illustration of a robot standing in front of the sink doing the dishes. And I thought, this is okay. This is the household servant robot. It washes sure, the dishes sure. for you at vacuums. And I thought, why would you have a robot do the dishes when? You, we already have dishwashers to do dishes. Why do? Yeah. Why is the robot? Why is the robot vacuuming when you could actually make a robot vacuum cleaner, which we have now done? The problem is the robots we have that manufacture cars are single-use robots, and they're boring. They don't make good stories. Well, yeah, we I think maybe maybe when I think about it, my response to Peter Watts, who I think mm -hmm. is far smarter than I am about these things, is the reason that science fiction stories about robots make assumptions that don't make sense in terms of robots or artificial intelligence is because mm -hmm. they make sense in terms of stories about people. Which is exactly uh, the, the point that they ought to be making. I, th I think that's, you know, I mean, it's true that you can write robot stories. And again, I go back to Asimov's robot stories that exist because they're logical puzzles. They're yeah. games. Um, but there's not much more to them than that. Um, yeah. And, and you're right. The other the other way of using robots historically is to uh, come up with a kind of slave class which is divorced from any actual ethnic or uh, national identities. In other words, robots as revolting slaves. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. Um, slaves in revolt. Yes. Slaves in revolt. It's it's easier to deal with that than it is to deal with actual union organizers in urban areas in the 1930s or actual oppressed people, or the slaves on the plantations, or uh, 
in, in, in other words, robots give you a kind of uh, ideologically uh, uncommitted way of talking about these issues in the abstract. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So let me ask you as we circle around, I mean, mm-hmm. on a day when we were going to attempt to record on a different platform, let me ask you this. Have you been, I mean, obviously you've been reading the Testaments by Margaret Atwood, and as mm-hmm. of last week when we spoke, I was reading and have now finished Ninth House by Lee Bardugo and should be reading a lot of short fiction, Gary, and I kind of am. Yes, you should. But I also, I also picked up and dove into The Iron Dragon's Daughter by Michael Swanwick, which I'm part way through reading, and I think is a lovely book, a really It's a wonderful book. book. Uh, and I'm struck again by what both, what an incredible year it has been. I think it's been, there's been some really genuinely terrific books published this year. And mm-hmm. I am somewhat staggered by the volume of out- outstanding books that I've heard are coming out next year that I already can't wait to read, that I have no idea how I'll find time, how I'll find time to read. I agree, and we both talked about uh, the, the next thing, one or two down on my pile will be uh, the new William Gibson novel, um, which is, I've already looked into it enough to know it's a direct sequel, more or less, to The Peripheral. Um, so do we all have to go back and read The Peripheral, do you reckon? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to debate right now, do I want to go back and reread The Hand, Handmaid's Tale, uh, or do I want to just assume that this is that everybody else who's reading the testaments probably read The Handmaid's Tale more than twenty years ago also and doesn't remember it any better than I do? So far, it's not giving me a problem. I bet. Um, I bet the people who read the um, the testaments have been rereading The Handmaid's Tale every second year in book club for years. Well, The Handmaid's Tale has been on the bestseller list here in the states almost continuously since the TV series began, either in the paperback mm-hmm. bestseller or ebook or whatever it is. So I, I think that's true, and a lot of people... This is the other interesting thing about sequels like this, because when we're kind of involved in the field, we're very much aware that The Handmaid's Tale is 35 years old. For a lot of the readers who didn't even think about reading The Handmaid's Tale until it showed up on television, that's a book they read two or three years ago, or maybe last month. But isn't that a more natural way to read anyway, Gary? I mean, I think uh, back to how I read before I got involved in the, in, in the science fiction field when I was just a reader. And I, I never really thought about when a book was written or published. I just read it. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I guess I was always kind of aware of how old something was because, um, well, I guess if because it was I was the Penguin Classics or something. But if you're just picking oh, yeah. it off the, up off a bookstore shelf, you know, do you really th- did you really well think about be, it much? Um, no, but on, on the other hand, uh, back when I was younger, which was oh, long, hundreds of years long, ago, oh, but hundreds, hundreds of, years, of years, ago. years ago, it was possible to go into a bookstore and uh, first of all, there'd be a lot of mass market paperbacks on the shelves, which there aren't anymore, and a lot of books. Uh, you could pick up a copy, you probably still can, but you could pick up a copy of the Martian Chronicles of Childhood's End in any bookstore for like a period of 50 years. And yeah, at that, at that point, you're just picking up these things because they stayed in print. Now I think there are only a handful of books that stay in print to the extent that they stay in stock at chain bookstores like Barnes yeah. and Noble. And so you're, you're more likely to be reading more recent stuff, I think. Um, and in order to find, uh, a 30-year-old book, you probably have to go looking for it now. I don't think you're going to come across it by accident the way you might have when you were younger or I might have. Sure. And, of course, as we sit here, I mean, I mean you have agency in your room, uh, your co- mm-hmm. uh, copy of the Gibson book. And I have it on my Kindle. So 2020 books are starting to leak through. Uh, it's going to be time to move on, Gary. It's going to be time to get on to recommended reading, try to decide what the best of 2019 was. Oh, God, I didn't. I only read half a dozen novels. I couldn't tell you. Read a lot of I'm short not, fiction, but and, and, and the best of is always a. We, we talk about this once a year, more probably more than that when we get to it. It's always best what because I know there's I know. such a variety. I mean, you mentioned the Iron yeah, Dragon. But, but that, no, 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 that's a quibble, uh, and you know it. It's not a quibble. You no, know, it, it absolutely is because if so, okay, let me ask you this. Right here we are. It's. The end of October, the year is the year is effectively done for for the reading purposes, right? You're not going to be reading many more 2019 books off the top of your head without looking at your list of books. Do you have one book that stood out for you? 
in 2019. Yeah. Without really, you know, having to think too deeply about it. Um, well, the, the problem is the, the novels that are kind of bubbling to the top of my mind right now, I don't think are even 2019 novels. Is it 10,000 Doors of January 2019 novel? Yes, of course it is. Okay, well, that's near the top of my list because that, that comes to That would be near the top of my list too, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've read it very recently. Um, you mentioned uh, the Iron Dragon's daughter. Mother. No, it's mother, the Iron, mother. Mother. The Iron Dragon's mother. Yeah. Um, and and that, I, I think what Swanwick does is something that nobody else quite does the way he does. But when, when I talk about the year's best, and we're going to have to do this when we start looking at um, the Locust recommended reading list, and Locus divides things into fantasy and science fiction, recommended fantasy novels and recommended science fiction novels. Which of those categories would you put the Iron Dragon's mother in? Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think we're almost getting to the stage where I just want to shoot it and let God sort it out. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I have to read more of The Iron Dragon's Mother to be sure. The 10,000 Doors of, of January, at least. You can sort of avoid the question by calling it a best first novel. And I think it will slug it out intensely with Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. I think one of those two, two books is most likely to be the deb debut of the year, even though there are some other strong ones. You know, it's going to be an interesting time, an interesting argument. But we're just about at the end of the hour. We can we can wind up. We can get on with the day. We can start winding up. And now I'm looking. Now I'm actually looking at my list of things. Of course I read you are. You couldn't help. Of course, me. there are a lot. Of, no. What's what's striking? <laughs> what's striking to me is that um, one of the uh, one of the books which I thought really impressed me at the time and isn't sticking with me as much as I thought it would was mm -hmm. Marlon James. Uh, um, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, or is it Red Leopard, yeah. Black Wolf? Um, it, it was Black, very Black impressive. Leopard, Red Wolf, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's, I think, a finalist for National Book Award? I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's having a lot of, uh, impact and so forth. And, um, there are more recent things I've read, like Annalie Newitz is the future of a, uh, of another timeline. Um, and the whole idea of time travel as a thing this year, between that and uh, uh, Max Gladstone's and uh, Empress of Forever, uh, or do you uh, mean uh, the the uh, Amal al Motar book? Uh, uh, not this is how you lose the time war. Yes. Uh, so that seemed to be a trend this year: time travel and so forth and so on. And and will remain through for for some while, I suspect, but. I think we are concluded in our journey. I've got a, a an 18-year-old daughter who was merely eight-year-old years old when we started this podcast, Gary, uh -huh. who I need to, need to see taken out for her high tea I think, with her friends. Well, um, and she has a birthday recently, doesn't she? She she turned 18 on just this the Monday just gone on the 14th. She's lost to you now. Well, not to my, my credit card, it would appear, but yeah, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> she knows where her priorities are. Well, give her, give her our best. I shall indeed, you know. Uh, we are, we are now in that intense time of the year where she has to finish her end of year exams and get into the whole working out what she's doing next year and apply everywhere and blah, 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 blah. And I would imagine, I mean, normally, I mean, we haven't recorded as much this year as we normally do, Gary. But normally we would go into hi hiatus sometime fairly soon. And mm -hmm. we'll have to have that conversation because, dear God, there's a lot to do, Gary, between now and next January. I know people for whom Christmas is a quiet time. Um, normally, if I were in the academic world still, Christmas would be a month-long hiatus between having to grade papers. It always felt wonderful. Mm. Now, of course, I have no responsibilities at all anywhere, so I'm just going to... Pickle yourself with a, in wine. Um, I just for the for, for the for the benefit of those few listeners who have sometimes wondered about uh, <laughs> the wine. I, I drink I drink on an average three glasses of wine per day. I'll have you know, um, mm -hmm. and and and, and but most of those happen during this podcast. So that's <laughs> only a coincidence. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Okay. I'm guessing you drink as much single malt in a week as well. Maybe not as much as I do wine, but hopefully uh, not. Never no. mind. Let's just not go there. 
<laughs> I drink enough. I, well, no, I drink too much. No, no. We'll leave it. We'll move on. We'll close the episode up. We'll have another episode next week. And then you'll, you'll be off at the World Fantasy Convention. I'll be off at World Fantasy where I will be, uh, for anybody who's going there, I will be talking with Margot Lanigan on Friday afternoon, I think. Okay. Well, until next week, I shall talk to you again. And until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast.